Okay, hello, hello, everybody. Um, we're starting a new study um, on Hezekiah, six weeks long, uh, which means that it will finish um, in six weeks. Um, I can't remember the date. Um, I think that the... Oh, it doesn't matter. Look it up. Six weeks. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I can't remember. Um, and then whenever it finishes, we'll probably have one more Tuesday, which will be a kind of class party and um, like a prom. You know, we can all come in dresses and made up. And I'm only joking, actually. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to wear these big mushroom dresses, you know, that they wear for the prom in the States. No, 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 never mind. Um, and, um, and then we'll start again in January with something else that I don't, I don't know about yet. I don't know what we'll do. Um, we had a, we've got another conference in November, November the 10th. It's called A Call to Arms. It's at Down Ampney Village Hall. And, um, we were going to have a residential in March, but the costs of the uh, conference centre are just too prohibitive, so we're not doing that. We will do one day or two days at Down Ampney, um, and then people can either stay at home or, or in the Premier Inn or something. It was just too expensive to do. So, um, and that is called uh, watching and waiting. Um, there is so much going on in this ministry, you can't even, I can't even keep up with it. I really just can't keep up with it. It's just so exciting. So if you haven't got anything better to do, look on our website, talk to me, talk to someone about it. We've got two mission things planned. Uh, one in Wimbledon at a church that I'm, I'm going to and one probably in North Wales. Um, we're going out on the streets every Tuesday evangelizing we've got share and prayer we've got discipleship we've got so much going on and I'm telling you all of this because this is your ministry I hope it's your ministry I really do there don't seem to be many people nodding their heads yes. encouragingly yeah please so please make yourself a part of it you know you, you, we need I mean you know well you know the body of Christ can't exist with three three fingers you know, we have to have everybody working together. So if you're not already doing anything and you're not already a part of it, just think about and pray about what, what the Lord would lead you to do in this ministry. Because there is so much going on, so many things we could, we are thinking about doing. Um, the church that I go to in Wimbledon are really struggling. They have about 10 or 11 people go there every Sunday. They've just come through a massively difficult time where members of the church... Um, try to take over bid. You know, how often does that happen in churches? It's really, you know, it's shameful. And so the um, pastor and his wife, pastor had cancer, recovered from the cancer, had a breakdown because of this that was going on. They have three sons, the eldest of which is, of whom is suicidal. I mean, really suicidal. They, and the, the other two sons have other difficulties. I mean, this is a family that are trying to run a church in, um, and to preach the word of God and stay by it. And, you know, so we're going to do this mission there. And the strangest thing is, um, you, I write in a little black book the ideas that come to me and what we want to talk about on a Tuesday afternoon. And in the last few days, I wrote down the word mission. Mission, who, where, and when. 
and just a big question mark because I didn't know why I was writing it. Didn't, just didn't know anything about it. So we get here today, they go out evangelising, they come back. Maureen starts to talk about she was on mission last week. I said, oh, on mission? She said, that'd be something really good for Desiring Truth to do, don't you think? Because I'd been talking to her about this church in Wimbledon. She said, we could go there on mission. It's just like, oh, Lord, how do you do that? You know, I've got this word on my... I had to prove I had the word on my book before I was, you know. But it was like, God does so many things. And he just goes... And whilst we were talking about it, about how we would do this mission in Wimbledon and what we would do, we got an email from people who used to come to the class when we were in Sirencester at New Life Church, who are now in North Wales. And the email said, we need... Um, I won't tell you what they said they needed, and then any ideas, Anne? And it was just basically another call to mission to in North Wales. It's just amazing to me that God does these things. He just opens them up. You have this random word written on a page, and then suddenly it's become a thing. So if you're interested in missions, sign yourself up. Come and talk to us about it, because, you know, nobody, again, there's not really much nodding and smiling. Um... We're going to hopefully, uh, Maureen was also telling us about somewhere she went over on her mission week recently. They read the Bible through from start to finish. Um, people read for half an hour. They just stood in the street and opened up the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 and one person read for half an hour and another person standing by their side. So if anyone walking by wanted to talk about that, the other person would speak. They went through the entire Bible. I don't know how long it took them. Um, people reading for half an hour. And uh, so we were thinking and talking about doing that in Sirencester. And uh, Eve, I'm looking at you because we um, thought to talk to you about the parish church in Sirencester and about involving other churches and other... Um, and we did that in London. Ah, did you? But we did it all at once. It's so interesting ah. how you did it in half past. I didn't do it. She was that telling me about it. It did. It took a long, long time. And she said it was quite difficult to get people to do it through the night or whenever at the odd times that it wasn't good. So, But anyway, it's just, you know, it's just like, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just amazing to me what God is doing. So, you know, get involved. Yeah. So, Father, thank you that um, you are an amazing God and you are opening doors and we are just being called to walk through them with your word. And thank you so much, Lord, that you enable us that you call us, that you enable us, that you bless us as we do it, Lord. It's just an amazing thing. So I praise you, Father, for what you're doing. I thank you that um, you're involving us. And I ask you now, Lord, as we start to take a look at the life of Hezekiah, that you will show us things in this short study that we haven't seen before. You will make connections for us that we haven't made before. And that we will be empowered by what we hear from you to, and, and really, you will set that desire in us to go out and to understand the times we live in and to go out into those times and into the, our culture and make a difference to talk about the Lord Jesus. So, Father, thank you that you will help us to do that. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow, it's like an oven in here. Sure. We had a word of knowledge that this would be a small place but it was extraordinary the places that people would reach out into uh, from this little place. Do you remember when mm. we were praying a few months ago? Oh, right, yes, yes. Well, yes, Simon sorry. at nine o'clock is um, giving a speech, as you know, yes. to his Oditonian friends. Right. But he, as an evangelist, mm. 
So that is really quite, if we could just be mindful of him at yeah. nine o'clock. Nine o'clock, yeah, I remind me. I know mind us saying, because yeah. we all know him well. But it is an extraordinary leap mm. in effect mm. mm. uh, to do that. Yeah, he was telling me that this morning. Yeah. He came this morning and yeah. Yeah, saying that, yeah. Just because mm. we're, you know, nine o'clock. Mm. Remind me if I miss the time then. Um, oh, well, I'll be finished long before nine, won't I? Okay, so this is Hezekiah, and it's called Leaving a Legacy. Um, I'm not sure what it's called, actually, because I've seen on the notes it says A Legacy of Hope, but I've been calling it Leaving a Legacy, so I don't really know what the title is, but that's what it is. It's Leaving a Legacy, and that legacy would be A Legacy of Hope. And I think um, I've called it that because that's what I want to leave behind. If I go suddenly in the rapture, if, if the Lord Jesus calls us back in five minutes, I want to know that I've left a legacy for my non-believing family. Um, and if I die, if I get hit by a helicopter when I go out uh, or something happens to me on the way home, I want to know that, that my life, my words and my life, would be a legacy for people to see the truth about God. And, um, and that I had hope, you know, I had hope. And that the hope, you, if you were there on Saturday, that's what we talked about, hope fulfilled, that the hope that I had, although it's not totally fulfilled, I have had the partial fulfillment of my hope in this life. And, um, and I have not been disappointed. And I want my life to, to say that to people. And, um, and that, that I boasted in and uh, exalted in and was sure and certain about my saviour and about where I was going and about what I was promised. And, um, and I believe that's possible. And I believe it's possible to leave that as a legacy for people. So that when we go, even when they're facing very dark and difficult times, if the rapture comes tomorrow, for example, and we get taken up, then the world is going to go into a terrible state very quickly. And people will need to know where to go and what to do. And um, you and I are the legacy. We're the legacy. The, the, the thing we leave behind is the legacy. And Hezekiah left a legacy. He did. He left a legacy. Um, and it made a difference. His life made a difference, not just in his own time, but in the time after him. Um, I don't know. We'll look later on at uh, Manasseh, who was a son of Hezekiah, who's called the worst king in all of Judah. And that's how he's introduced. But Manasseh um, has a turnaround at the end of his life, and he's actually included in the genealogy of Christ. So Hezekiah's legacy to his son, although for a large part of his life, his son did, was, acted very wickedly on the throne of, um, of Judah and uh, did you know, terrible things, walked away from the Lord. At the end, I think that his, the legacy of his father made a difference in his life and he turned back to God and is then, as I say, is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which is quite an amazing thing. Um, so, um, our legacy, I think, comes from the transformation of our souls. I think that we can talk about being born again, we are born again, but that transforming work of the Spirit in our soul, in it, that makes us into the character of Jesus Christ, that changes us, from, um, moulds us and shapes us, that is what we leave behind. And that's what Paul always talked about. Whenever he spoke he, anywhere, or he wrote to anyone, he said, you observed what type of men we were when we were with you. We didn't... We, we fed ourselves, we worked hard, we did this, we did that. We followed what we're teaching you. 
because Paul's words were the same as his actions. His life demonstrated the truth of his words. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which you know because I'm always quoting. Um, Therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercies, present your body a living sacrifice, um, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind um, so that you can find out what the good and perfect will of God is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 24, lay aside the old man and put on the new. The old man is being corrupted. Uh, Even as we speak, the old man in you is being corrupted and the new man is already made in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So put on the new man. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, um, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory as to the Lord. Um, and First Peter chapter 1, 3 to 9, um, where Peter will tell them that, that we are protected by the power of God through faith. And even though we have to endure various trials right now, that is for the, for the making of our character, for the strengthening of our faith and will result in glory at the end. And I'm quoting all those scriptures to say that work of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that transforming work is your legacy. And if you don't go along with that transforming work of the Spirit, then you have nothing to leave behind. You've got nothing. Nobody will be able to remember your life and say, wow, look at how God changed him or her. Look at what God did in that life. Look at Look at how he was or she was. And the people who will see the legacy most are the people closest to you because they're the ones who will observe the changes. And that transforming work, I think, is is the most important part of your life and my life. It's the most uh, defining work in, in the life of a believer. You know, to be honest, in some ways, God does all the miracles, right? So it's easy to do miracles. In some, I mean, I'm not saying you're going to do them, but it's easy for miracles to be done. Because God, who does, God does those through, and he'll use any temple. He'll use a donkey, as everyone always quotes. He'll use a donkey. He'll use a stone. He'll use anything. But the work of the Spirit in us to sanctify us and change us from where we were in our selfishness and pride and arrogance and all of that, to change us into people who are not selfish or unselfish and gracious and merciful, that is an amazing work of God. And that's what people will remember. That's what they'll remember. And that transforming work of, the, of our souls is the truth of the gospel. Actually, the gospel is not good news if you are going to stay the same as you were. And if you think it is because you're just getting into heaven, then you haven't believed or haven't received the truth of the gospel. The transforming work of our soul is the reality of the gospel message. It's the flesh on the bones, if you like, of the, of the gospel message. And all of the Old Testament saints understood that. Whether they understood the gospel or not, all of the Old Testament saints knew that their trust in the promises of God and their going along with that was the thing that God would use in their lives to bring about whatever he was going to do. Abraham... Abraham obeyed God, obeyed God. Moses, um, Job, uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of them understood 
that uh, saying that you believed in the promises of God resulted in obedience, res resulted in a changed disposition, a changed um, character, and they were all changed by their believing the promises of God. And um, and if you don't, if we don't see that, I mean, Job. Think for example, Job. Think about the book of Job. Think about his life, about the suffering in his life, the difficulty of his, the circumstances of his life. And then think, this is the man who would say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last he will take his stand upon the earth. In unsparing pain, he says, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He, he is a man who knew the promises of God, and even in the midst of desperately terrible circumstances, he clung on to the promises of God. And actually, that formed his character. His wife would say, curse God and die. His friends had nothing to say to him. But he, in the end, he's called the most righteous man in the East in the beginning, and he is called righteous in the end, and God tells him to pray for his friends. Pray for his friends, because this man was, was transformed by the work of the Spirit, so much so that he could hang on to his faith in circumstances that I think probably you would be very hard to find someone who had worse circumstances. So that transforming work um, is based on your knowledge of knowing that the promises of God to you are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, that they won't be broken, that God is faithful. And Hebrews 11, um, Hebrews chapter 11 is the classic uh, passage, the classic chapter of people starting in the Old Testament, moving to the New, people who trusted God and obeyed him. Believing in Jesus means obeying God. The two things are synonymous. Um, I, t I say that so many times, I know that you must be tired of hearing it from me. Um, you will only obey God if you believe him to be faithful and true, if you believe him to be a blessing God. You will not do what he says if you don't trust him. You will only do what he says if you trust him to do what he has promised to do. He rewards obedience. That's the bottom line. And the thing is, when you obey God, and I know we hate the word obedience, we're always talking about loving God and knowing him and, and going along with him and aligning ourselves with his will because they all sound so much more palatable than obedience. But when you obey the commands of God, when you do what he, you know he wants you to do, even when it hurts to do it, you say to the world that you believe God is good that he is for you, that he is faithful, that he is worth it. You, you, your life screams that when you obey, especially when you obey with things that are very difficult. You can say, can't you, over and over again, I mean, I've said to you this to you before, I heard a um, man talking on parenting years ago when my son was probably 10 or 11, and he came to the school and he gave this talk, this man, and he stood on the stage and he said, um, he, uh, he said, you can tell your children a hundred times a day that you love them. If you spend no time with them, they won't believe you. Now, it's, we cannot spend time with God if we are disobeying him. Not because God withdraws, although sometimes I think he does, but because we are so uncomfortable to be with him when we know we're not doing what he's asked us to do. And so the distance becomes great. 
And that's what he was, was trying to say. If we love God, we will do what he says and we will want to spend time with him. That's not what the man was saying. That's what I'm saying from what he was, what he was saying. Um, we're going to be taking a very short look, six weeks, at Hezekiah. Um, and I, He's a saint. He's an Old Testament saint. We will see Hezekiah in heaven. How great is that? We will see him. He wasn't perfect. He made lots of mistakes, especially at the end of his life. But we will see him in heaven. And his life, it, we can see in his life a shadow of our life. Even though he lived before Christ, 700 years before Christ, and we lived 2,000 years after him, we can see in Hezekiah's life and in his time the shadow or the picture, if you like, of our time and how God worked in, in a man who had surrendered to him and was obeying him. And King Hezekiah is a really good example because um, his father, King Ahaz, was a direct contrast to him. And I think it's really good to look at, the, um, to look at Ahaz and look at how Hezekiah was because many of us, myself included, come from non-believing parents. I come from non-believing parents. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a good home, but not a Christian home. Many people don't grow up even in a good home. They don't have good fathers, and yet they hold to the truth of God. And that was Hezekiah. He grew up with a very wicked father, and yet Hezekiah was the complete opposite of his father. How does that happen? How does... You know, how does that go on? I think that's interesting. And so uh, what I wanted to look at is, on the first session, I want to look at Ahaz and his time, the father of Hezekiah, before next week when we go in to look at Hezekiah. Because in a way, King Ahaz is the darkness before the dawn. He is the, the blackest night before the light comes up in the morning. And um, so for me, that's quite interesting. So 2 Chronicles, chapter 28, verse um, 1 to 4. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 1 to 4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord, as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals, Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. The first four verses of this chapter that introduce Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28, show us straight away what God thought of this king. Now, I think if God were writing a book about us, about each person in this room, it would be the first four sentences that would describe who we are in God's economy. And with Ahaz, as with all the kings of Israel, it's the first few lines in the chapters that describe them that tell us about their character. And what you see about King Ahaz is that he worshipped and gave offerings to other gods and even sacrificed his own sons in the fire um, to appease those other gods. And I want you to think about that and think about um, how we see that happening in our day. How we see this same idol worship, this same pagan worship, and the results of it are the sacrifice 
of our children. We have abortion rates that are off the scale. We have gender confusion that is, is, is killing our children and will kill them, that is sending them into confusion and chaos such as will destroy their lives. We have despair and, disp and um, suicide rates in young children. We have, we have all sorts of things going on. We have euthanasia. We have the killing of people with incurable illnesses. We have places you can go now in Switzerland to die, to choose to die. We have people, doctors, advocating um, the ways to let people die to, in, and, in fact, the same as kill them. We have the same thing going on in our day as Ahaz did in his day. He sacrificed his sons in the fire and we are sacrificing our children in the fire of today's culture. We are worshipping other gods and, and our children are being sacrificed to it. Um, and, and who's behind the other gods that Ahaz was worshipping? Who's behind the other, the Baals? Satan is behind them, and Satan is behind our culture. Satan is moving our culture. And what is Satan's intention for the world? To destroy it. Satan's desire is to destroy the human race, to destroy the human race. And we are going along with him when we adopt his modus operandi, when we choose to go against the truth of what we know in scripture and align ourselves with the world. And I'm talking about these things, abortion and euthanasia and, um, and gender confusion and all of this stuff, because this is the culture that's come in like a flood. It's in now. And it's even in churches. There is this huge culture smash that has come from the enemy into our life and into our churches. And, and really, <laughs> we are sacrificing our children in this fire. And um, we see it in all sorts of ways. We see it not just in the, in the culture itself. We see it in the church. We see it in the travesties that are masquerading as truth. We see it in the prosperity gospel, in the word of faith movement. We see it in Christian yoga and Christian mindfulness. We see it in all these different ways that are wrapped up in Christian wrapping paper, but I've got nothing to do with Christ. We see this, uh, en the enemy at work towards us. And we are sacrificing our children. We are. And we are sacrificing ourselves on the altars of foreign gods, on the altars of Satan, and um, denying the basic tenets of our faith denying the basic things, denying the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Um, what happened to Ahaz, Second Chronicles 28, verse 5, Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of King Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. And then verse 17, um, For again the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Aijalon, Gedaroth and Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of King Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about 
a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. What happened to Ahaz? He reaped what he sowed. He, and uh, what was even worse, perhaps, is that the whole nation reaped what Ahaz sowed. What the king did in Judah infected the whole of the nation. What you and I do as Christians infects the body of Christ. It infects the body of Christ. We have a responsibility one to another to make sure that we are healthy in spirit. Because if I'm not healthy, I'm breathing on you all the time and you're taking in my germs. We have a responsibility. And the higher up you go, if you like, in terms of leadership, the more that you are um, having effect and impact onto other people's lives, the more you are responsible to make sure of your spiritual health. We have often the reverse going on. That the more people are involved in famous ministry, the less they're bothered about their own individual spiritual health. Um, and yet we see clearly in scripture that as the king, as the priest, so the people. So the people. So if you look at um, Second Kings and, and Second Chronicles run sort of concurrently, they talk about the same thing. Second Kings chapter 16, verse 1 to 11. Kings was written before the exile to Babylon, First and Second Kings, and Chronicles after the exile. So they're both looking at the same events but from different perspectives. Um, Second uh, Kings chapter 16, reading from 1 to 11. So could someone read the first five or six verses and then someone else the other five? Second Kings 16, 1 to 11. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramallah, Re- um, <laughs> Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. Then Mezid, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath, for Aram by driving out the men of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. Yes, please. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr, 
and put resin to death. Thank you. Okay, there's an interesting statement in here. With enemies all around, Ahaz cries out to the king of Assyria. And what he says is slightly different in uh, Debbie's translation is, I am your servant and your son. I am your servant and your son. And he sends, just to be on the safe side, he sends him a big bag of gold and silver as well. But basically, what is he saying when he says to the uh, king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son? What does he mean? Yeah, I follow the same gods as you. What he's basically saying, isn't it, is that you are my master and you are my father. Okay, think about that in terms of kings of Israel and kings of Judah. Who is their master? God. Who is their father? God. So this is a direct turning from God, who is his master and his father, to the king of Assyria. And he's basically saying, you will be to me as God. You will be to me as God. And I'm crying out to you rather than to God. And um, instead of the God that his fathers had worshipped, instead of the gods that the Is- um, Israel from the beginning had, instead of God that, he had, um, that they had worshipped, he's turning to someone else um, and turning away from God. And he knows the word of God. He knows the law of the Lord. How do you know that he knows God and he knows his word? Yeah, David is his father. Yeah, the father's taught his children. David was his ancestor, actually, not quite his father. I know it's his father, but ancestor. But in Deuteronomy, um, when God is giving the law through Moses, he says to Moses, this is what I want you to write down. There will be a day when they ask for a king. And when they do, this is what the king has to do. And in Deuteronomy 17, what um, Moses will tell them, or what God will say through Moses is, I want the king to write down for himself the book of the law, and then I want him to read it every day. So the book of the law is the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around you, around me, you shall surely set the king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, um, moreover, and then he goes on about he must not, um, they must not do certain things. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses or wives. He shall never go down to Egypt again, or his heart will turn away. Now it shall come about, in verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. How do you learn to fear God, to respect him? How do you learn to do that, according to this? By By doing it, by doing it. Yes, by knowing it, but by actually doing it. So Ahaz knew this. When he came to the throne, he would have been handed this book. He would have had to write it out for himself, and he would have had to read that every day. But can you see how there's a huge difference between reading and knowing in your mind the truth and actually doing it and so applying it to yourself? That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. That's the difference between a good king and a wicked king. Go ahead, Carol. Deuteronomy. Uh, 17, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20. 
You see, there are many, many, many people who would identify as Christians today who are in church congregations, I won't say churches, who are in congregations and they know the Word of God. They know that it is the Bible. They can tell you, they can quote certain verses. They can read lovely Psalms, Psalm 23, which they really like. They know all those things, but because they don't obey the Word that they read, they have no real relationship with God. And when God talks about knowing his word, you know that he means doing his word. He means doing it. Um, and it's that, the doing of his word, that causes us to respect God. There is a, a, a connection, a direct connection to actually doing what God says, which builds up our love and our respect for him. And if you won't obey God, then you're not, build, you're not building up the blocks of your relationship with God and you will not love him and you will not fear him or respect him. And consequently, we have whole hosts of people every Sunday in the building who really are not believers or are not at least not obeying God and do not know him. That's why it's so easy to water down the word of God. That's why it's so easy to change the style of things. That's why it's so easy to concentrate on the people rather than on God. <coughs> Unless you do what God says, you have no relationship with him. You cannot go any deeper than whatever your relationship is at the moment. Obedience is the route, is the pathway to intimate relationship with God. And um, you see it so clearly in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. Um, and people in churches, congregations, they're not deliberately turning their back on God. Their motives for watering down the gospel, their motives for um, changing certain basic tenets of our faith, I don't think are necessarily bad. I think they've got good motives. I think most people, most leadership in churches, they started well. They wanted to bring people into church. They want to bring people in and, to, um, and, and they want to, you know, and to do good in their communities and they want to feed, feed the homeless and, and all of those things. And all of that is good. But it comes to nothing if, at the, at, if it comes at the expense of the gospel, if it comes at the expense of obeying God, if it comes at the expense of God himself. Once you put people above God, you are done for. And that's where we are. And that's because we live in a culture that is essentially um, pragmatic. We want to do what is practical, what will end up being good for the moment. So it seems practical to bend the truth to bring people into church. As opposed to delighting in his... Exactly, lives. exactly. I mean, what's his name? Um, Oh, gosh, you know, the um, Purpose Driven Life guy, Rick Warren. Yeah. Rick Warren. If you hear him talk, you know that's a man who loves God. He does. You, you hear him and you know he, he loves God. He is a believer. I expect to see him in, in heaven. I was going to say in prison, but I mean in heaven. <laughs> I don't know why. I expect to see him in heaven. Um, but when he moved to Orange County, California, he went around all his neighborhood. His father was a preacher and he, came, he grew up in the church. And he went around his whole neighbourhood in Orange County and he took a survey round. And his questions were, knocked on every door, when did you last go to church? 
And what would it take to get you back into a church? And he put together all of those answers and he came up with Saddleback Church. Now, that's from his own mouth. That's from his own mouth. And he exports from that church something called Purpose Driven Church. And at my church in Tokyo took that on just as I was leaving. So they t- you, and the training that goes with that is give the people what they want so that they'll come into church. And when you get them in, then later on you can talk to them about Jesus. And the whole concept of that is upside down. We, why, do people, why do we want to bring people into church? Yeah, no, but let's forget we want them to hear the truth. What are they saying? What is Rick Warren and people like him saying? What do we say when we say, let's just get people into church? We want numbers. Get them to come. We want numbers and also... Well, yeah, to grow the church. But what we're saying actually is, if you go to church, you must by necessity be a good person. You are a moral person usually. You're going to do the right things. You're going to care about the community. You're going to hear about all these good things that we're doing to make people's lives better. And so I'm trying to paint a good picture, not a bad picture. Not that they want them for the numbers, but they want to involve them in work that will be good, good work. That is the gospel of grace plus works. That's the works before the grace. That's the opposite of Christianity. It's the opposite. And what you're actually saying is, it's more important to be inside the building than it is to hear a gospel that offends you. It's more important to come and to all be together, sing some nice songs, hear about Jesus in some, you know, ethereal way so that he's up there and, you know, he did this. But on no account do you ever have to get offended by the cross and you never have to face the fact that, oh my goodness, you can do all the good works in the world and you still won't get to heaven. And that's the problem. Did Rick Warren start out to deceive? I don't suppose so but he ended up with millions and millions and millions of people believing a false gospel. He, he preaches and talks about his, plan, his peace plan. It's called P-E-A-C-E, and it's an acronym for something, and I can't remember the, what everything stands for. But basically, his whole ideology now is go around the world, which he does, go around the world, go into every town and in the, into every village and find the man of peace and work with him. Find the man of peace. He could be a Buddhist or a Muslim. He could be an atheist. He could be a humanist. Find the man of peace and work with him. Why? Because Rick Warren's idea is let's change the world. Let's make the world a good place. Now on the face of it, that's not a bad idea, is it? I mean, actually, I wouldn't mind if the world was a better place. But that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. That's what all the cults teach. That's not Christianity. And that's where we are. And that's just one church. Saddleback's enormous, and they, I don't know how many services they have over the weekend, but, you know, loads and loads and loads. They export their way of doing church all over. And we have other mega churches like that. We've got Hillside, we've got Bethel, we've got all those big churches. I'm not saying they're all wrong, and I'm not saying everybody in them are all wrong, but what I am saying is, if the gospel message itself and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in a person is not the power of God unto salvation, then we are doomed. If the church building with the cross on the top doesn't talk about the, the work of Jesus, the fact that it's grace alone, by faith alone, and that, that when you come that way, God will change you into something wonderful, that he will change you from what you were, which was pretty hideous, 
into something absolutely glorious. If we don't preach that message, people believe the false gospel. And if you believe a false gospel, you are not saved. You may look like a Christian, you may sound like a Christian, you may even think you are a Christian, but if you have believed a false gospel, you are not a Christian. That is the tragedy of our day. That's the tragedy. It's not enough to know the word of God. It has to be obeyed. And Ahaz would not obey it. He knew it, but he would not obey it. Look at what Paul says in Acts 20. He's called all the um, um, uh, elders together from Ephesus, um, to Ephesus, Acts chapter 20. He's on his way. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem, and, or he knows he's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. This is Acts 20, verse 17. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from publicly, sorry, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Um, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among them your own selves and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that, those, that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul could say to them quite honestly, I declared to you the whole purpose of God, the whole counsel of God. I didn't take one part of scripture and put that over another. I didn't take one truth and say that was more important than the other. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. And what he means by the fact that he fed himself by his own hands is that he did not take anything from anybody. He worked his way around his part of the world in order to share the gospel. This is a man who gave up everything for Christ Jesus. And he finished, he said, he, it, it was, what does he say? His life verse, I think it is, in, um, um, where am I? 
um, verse, yeah, 24, Acts 20, 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Um, this is a gospel, and it is a, a, the gospel includes the whole purpose of God, and he did not shrink, he says, from declaring the whole purpose of God. He didn't water down the gospel to make it palatable wherever he went. He didn't change what he was saying. He changed the way he presented it, but he presented the truth because he knew that it's the truth that saves. It's the truth that saves. And... Um, um, and why when must we not do the same? Why must we do the same thing? Because if we change the gospel message, we change the truth, and it, it is not a saving gospel, as I've just said. If people believe a false gospel, they do not have salvation. No matter how much they think, they are saved. Same thing happened in Judges way back in time. The book of Judges is a very similar time to ours, similar time to Ahaz, I think. I mean, actually, you know, sometimes we talk about this world being more wicked. I wonder really if it is than it was back then. Because, you know, I mean, Ahaz was sacrificing his own sons in the fire. I mean, really? Is there, think of the wickedness of that. Judges, um, Judges tells you why the days were like they were. And over and over again, you read the same statement and the book ends with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges 21, verse 25. Christians have a king, and his name is Jesus. And the title king means allegiance to, that we bow to this king, that we, have, we come to him as our king. And that means he's king and we're not. It means that we owe him allegiance. We owe him everything. If you really believe what you are headed for and that he saved you from it, how can you possibly quibble about something he asks you to do? Why would you say, well, I'm not doing that. That's too difficult. I don't like that. I don't like the look of that. I know you saved me from hell, and I do believe it's a terrible place with burning fire and the, the worm dies not, but actually, you know, obeying what you're saying, I mean, really, why? Why should I do that? But we spend eons of time arguing. And I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. I have a rebellious nature. I have a rebellious nature. And even as a Christian, if, I, if you tell me I need to be doing something and I don't want to do it, in me rises up, why should I? Why should I do that? And this was Ahaz. It was Ahaz. That was King Ahaz. That's how he started. He wouldn't have started doing these wicked, terrible things. He grew into the wickedness. We grow into our rebellion and into our wickedness. It takes a great effort of our will to bow our knee to Jesus, even after we're saved. And that's what we're called to do. We have to make him number one. And we are so easily taken away into every other type of worship. There's a small picture of the sort of thing I mean in, um, in Matthew, Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember when um, uh, Peter and James and John, they go up with Jesus to the top of the mountain and Jesus is transfigured in front of them. And also they see Moses and Elijah standing there. And Peter, always Peter, he says, oh, I'll build three tabernacles for you here. I'll build three tabernacles. Let's go there. Matthew 17 
um, verse 1 to 8. And um, he wants to do that. He wants to build these, these two tabernacles, and you can understand why. Moses and Elijah are two most revered men, probably, in, um, in the uh, history of Israel. And they're there with Jesus, and he's transfigured before him. So Peter's just saying, oh, let's just build these tabernacles. And it takes a work of God for him to see that none of Moses or Elijah don't matter. Only Christ matters. Look at what God says. He says in, um, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good, this is verse 4, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. That is the Christian life. We are to see no one but Jesus Christ alone. He is our focus. He is our horizon. He is our goal. He is the foundation. It is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. You can understand, Peter, with Moses and um, Elijah, great men. He wants them all to stay. And at that moment, when he's saying, I'll build a tabernacle for all three of you, what he means is, it'll be great to listen to all of you. Wow, it'll be great to be in your presence. He's putting Jesus on the same level. Exactly, we're putting Jesus on the same level. And it takes God to come in and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And they fall flat on their face. God's answer is only Christ, Christ alone. Christ alone. And we, as I said, as I read in verse 8, they open their eyes and they see no one but Christ. That's what God wants us to do. He's left us with a word that talks about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, which you all know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Um, I won't go on with that, but, you know, in him... Well, I am going to go on with it. And now I've forgotten it, so hold on. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Uh, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. I missed out. Um, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That is who Jesus is. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Fantastic verses about Jesus. You know, Hebrews 1, um, oh gosh, my Bible, the pages are so fine. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his, God's glory, and the exact representation of God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is better than Jesus? Who is bigger than Jesus? He alone is to be worshipped. And once you put people in there and say, we must do this and do that and look after this and find out the felt needs and get people into church and it's really important that we get the people in. It is not really important that people come to church. It is really important that Christ is there. 
That's the important thing, that we are the body of Christ, that Christ is among us. That's the important thing. If, if, if 50% of this room is not here and Christ is here, it doesn't matter. If I'm only here and Christ is here, it'd be a bit lonely, but it doesn't matter. But we have churches focused on the people, focused on bringing them in, focused on doing what is good for them, focused on on how to do this. And we are laying aside the truth of God's word, laying aside and going along with our culture, going along with the uh, things of our culture. Tell me some things about Christ from John 1 and, and Hebrews 1. Just call them out. He's radiant. He is the uh, radiance of God's glory. He made the universe. universe. By him all things were created. He upholds all things things by the word of his power. All things were created by him and through him and for him. He's there in it all. He, 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 He created it all and it was all through him and it was all for him. You were created for Christ Jesus. I was created for Christ Jesus. I was created through Christ Jesus. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He speaks and whispers and things get upheld. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is God most high, sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. He is the redeemer and the saviour of this world. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and he alone demands our all. Amen. Yeah, amen. <laughs> amen. And as we go through this study of Hezekiah, the, what we're supposed to be looking for and seeing is why God included Hezekiah's life in the Bible. I mean, obviously, the Old Testament is the history of Israel. So Hezekiah really lived, and he really did these things, and, and he really responded to God and did what he did. And, and that's interesting. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament accounts are, are written down for us that we, they might be examples to us. So what example can we see from Ahaz and the way he responded to his own culture and from Hezekiah so that we make the right choices in ours? Because that's why God included them. We don't have to have a Bible that's two-thirds about Israel. Why do we have to have a Bible that's two-thirds about Israel? Because it's two-thirds about God. And he, God is speaking to us through every page. So we have to learn things from the life of Hezekiah. Paul will say in Timothy, won't he? He'll say, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for reproving, correcting, exhorting the person of God that he may be adequate and equipped for every good work. You want to be able to be adequate and equipped? Then every single word of scripture, every God-breathed word is for you. Second uh, Kings chapter 16, back again to Ahaz. Um, not only did Ahaz turn away from God, but eventually he went to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria. And, um, and in doing so, he started to copy their altars. Second Kings chapter 16, um, verse 7 to 16. Um, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath. Pilazar, uh, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Um, uh, no, sorry, let's go on a little bit more. 
Um, now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet this king of Assyria and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of the king of Ahaz, of King Ahaz from Damascus. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Then the king approached the altar and went up to it and burned his burnt offering and his meal offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. The bronze altar, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meal offering and the king's burnt offering and his meal offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. So Uriah the priest did all that the king um, Ahaz commanded. Can you see what he's doing? I know you're sleepy, it's evening time. Can you see what, you're, what he's doing? He's copying their altars, but what's he doing with them? He's substituting the, the altars of the king of, of Assyria and he's even mixing them with some of the stuff from the temple of God. And then he's bringing the, the offerings that he's supposed to bring to God on the altars that God has provided. He's bringing and putting on the altars that he's copied from the king of Assyria. Can you see the mix of that? The mix of it and all the kind of weirdness of it. A bit of this and a bit of that mix it all together. And then when I need anything from God, I'll inquire at the bronze altar. And, and all the while thinking it's all okay, I can mix this and mix that and it'll all be okay. Or really not even thinking about it at all. What he's thinking is, um, the Assyrians are doing okay. I think I'll worship their gods. Goodness, it's we hard to keep the straight and narrow in a church. Isn't it? Isn't it? It's so hard. But that's why we need each other, Eve, isn't it? That's why we need each other. God had already... Sorry, Jane, go ahead. I just wanted to share something, mm. which is relevant to this being as you, you know, mm. we're talking about idol worship, really, mm. a lot of the time, mm. this, mm. it seems to me, anyway, mm. and something that seems is happening in the church that my husband and I are attending at the moment is the eco-church, oh, yeah. and the earth, literally, yeah. you know, the yeah. world, the yeah. earth, is being yeah. sort of, well, we must save the planet, totally. Yeah. And, and it really yeah. is becoming yeah. an idol. It is becoming an idol. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really quite scary because we've had someone standing up at the front of the church saying things like, um, we must eat less meat. Oh, yes. um, and that's, we know this is very difficult. You don't like the truth, but you know, we need to eat less meat because we must do more to save the planet and um, you must save water, um, so don't you know waste water down the sink. Put it in a jug. Or oh put gracious! It next to, yeah, um, uh, can I just say by the way, my husband's a civil engineer, and if you don't put water down the sink, we're going to block up the sewers. So yeah. Please <laughs> put water down the sink. Um, and you know, it's horrendous. <coughs> yeah. And you know, <coughs> my husband and I sat there the other week. This is at a harvest festival, thinking. 
hardly believe what we were hearing. Because the planet's not going to be... They can do what they like, but the planet's going. Yeah, yeah. But you can see the... Um, the mix are Yes, that's it, the mix. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's a good thing. It's be good stewards of what we're given. Mm. It is a distraction. And also, it's this idea that we can save the planet. And that's what's behind it, is Satan saying, you can be like God, you can save the planet. And you can make the world a better place. And that's, it's always, it's Satan behind it all. And saying to these uh, congregations, these uh, ministers or whatever, saying, you know, you, you need to look after the people. You need to be caring and loving. You need to love your neighbour as yourself. And it's all good. But it's all the wrong way around. Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, King Ahaz is building these altars and... Um, and we're doing that all the time. Thank you, Jane. That's a perfect example. We're doing that all the time. Um, I've got lots and lots of examples, but you know all of them. I've probably said them a million times before. Okay. So um, there's a quote I've got from um, Spurgeon, who knew what was coming as preachers moved away from the truth. So as what I'm saying, this is not totally new for our day. This has been coming for a very long time. And um, he wrote something called The Downgrade, I'd never read it before, but um, and I've got books that Spurgeon wrote. He, he, this, he wrote this on the downgrade, and it, what he wrote is, and this is the quote: "On the downgrade, the travel, the train travels very fast. Another station has been passed, and another, and another. What next? And what next? And it's like this: the church is on, or the preaching of the truth is on the downgrade, and we are going so fast down these tracks now, and this, you know, and everything is going by, and what's next? And what's next?" Um, Ahaz had no trouble taking on the ways of the world and that's where we are and of course um, God had warned him and it wasn't long before the king of, the, of Assyria came against him 2nd Chronicles chapter 28 um, verse 20 to 23 we read that the king of Assyria who had helped him now comes against him and um, uh, yeah, so Tilgath, verse 20, Pilsner, king of Assyria, came against Ahaz and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Although Ahaz took a portion of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. Now in the time of his, of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus which had defeated him and said, because the gods of the king of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Can you see what he's doing? He's just looking out there and saying, this is what they're doing and that's helping them, so I'm going to do that. And um, on and on. And in, it's almost a terrible indictment. In the time of his distress, he didn't turn to the Lord. He turned away from the Lord. And I think I said at the beginning, Manasseh, um, Hezekiah's son, so Ahaz's grandson, you'll read exactly the same statement in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 12, in his distress, but again, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So there's this direct contrast between Ahaz and Manasseh, two wicked kings, 
One in the time of his dress, distress turned away from God and the other turned to God. And the one who turned to God, even though he's des- described as the worst and the most evil king, God was gracious to him. Um, God restored him back. Ahaz could have chosen the right path, but he didn't. He chose the way of the world and um, didn't care about the truth. Um, Okay, so finally, with Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28, um, 24 to 27. Um, Where are we? 24. Uh, But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces and closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city, in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Um, final actions of Ahaz in cutting up the temple utensils and probably the worst thing of all, locking the doors of the temple. Locking the doors so that no one could come in to worship the true God. And when I was finishing this week's um, notes and I was thinking about locking the doors of the temple, I was thinking about in what ways have we locked the doors of the temple of God in our day? In what ways have we done that? What was that meant to the population? They couldn't get in to worship God. So they couldn't make their sacrifices? No, no. So he condemned them all? He did. He condemned them all. Because their only way was through sacrificing the rules of the Yes, and that's what brought it into my mind. Okay, in what way have we as Christians shut the door, locked the door? By not preaching the right gospel, by watering down the truth, by saying that you can come to God in all sorts of different ways, by saying things like find the man of peace and work with him because it only matters about working together rather than worshipping the one true God. Yeah. Yes. Well, there was one temple. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So how have we closed them? How have we locked them? And it made me think about um, Revelation, you know, Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus is talking to the churches. And he talks in, um, in, to the uh, church in Sardis. I just concentrated on Sardis and Laodicea because they seem to me to be representative of churches in our day. So um, uh, the message to Sardis, which is in um, chapter 3 of Revelation, uh, verse 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, 
and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I was thinking, I mean, of all the things in there that we could talk about, just think about this idea of closing the door to God, closing the door to the temple. And that's what they did in Sardis, because people were going in thinking the church was alive, but it was dead. It was dead to all intents and purposes. And we have, as I've already said, massive churches like that around the Western world that look like they are alive, that have beautiful music ministries, that have all sorts of um, outward appearance as if they're alive, but are dead because they are not preaching the gospel. They are not preaching the truth of the gospel. Um, And therefore they are closing the door to God. They're closing the door. Imagine what would be the worst thing that you could imagine, really, in a time when the world is getting darker and darker, in a time when, when our world is just sometimes beyond, beyond our thinking. People are searching for God. Make no mistake, people are looking for something. They are looking for something. They may not call it God, but they are looking for something. Now, just imagine those people are walking into the church building that's got strobe lights and fantastic music, and probably strobe lights are too old-fashioned, aren't they? But anyway, they've got these lights and music. They've got fantastic technology in there. They've got loads of young people on the stage in the band, and they're all singing, and it's just fantastic. And they're getting a message, and it's all about... It's not necessarily feel good. There might be a few hard things in there, but God wants to make your life better. He just so much wants your life to be better. He wants you to be happy. He wants you. He's going to change. He's going to heal you, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do that. And all because he just wants to, not because you've repented and confessed. That is effectively shutting the door because people get inside that building and think that that is Christianity. And they believe that that's the way to God. And so you've effectively shut the door. Because why would they go into any other church? Yeah. So that's one way of closing the door to the temple. And the other way was the obvious one in uh, uh, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens, uh, I will go in and eat with him. What does that mean? If Jesus is saying, behold, you know, so behold, I stand at the door and knock. If he's standing at the door of the church and knocking, the door is closed and he's not in. But there are people in. Because he says, I know your deeds and they're, not even, they're neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So whatever we make of it, however we, we interpret it, whatever we think about it, Jesus is outside the door of this church. And if he's outside the door, that means inside they don't have Christ. How are you locking, how are we locking the doors of the churches? Because we're teaching that everything's okay and that you don't need to be sold out for God. You don't need to be surrendering to God. You can just do a bit of this and a bit of that and come to church on Sunday and all will be fine. Not preaching the gospel um, is basically closing the door to the temple. If you don't teach... If you don't preach the gospel, what happens? Yeah, that's the end result. But what, what's the process of that? If you don't preach the gospel, what? Yeah, if you don't preach the gospel, you don't tell people they're sinners. There's no such thing as sin if you don't preach the gospel. 
And if you don't tell them they're sinners, they don't need a saviour. And if they don't need a saviour, exactly. And he's the one who said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what I find so frustrating about the Church of England, because for instance, on Monday, the lectionary, there was a swift chunk of sin. Mm. You know, mm. and mm. It's, it's these two yeah. things. It's pro yeah. proclaiming the truth, but do you believe it, do you do it? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's what I said in the beginning, I think. Yeah. That's the difference. I think that it is taught. I mean, the Bible is read in places, yeah, as you're saying, in the lectionary. They're reading scripture. In most congregations, you would hear some sort of reading, something on the screen, something of the word of God. But if it's not applied to our lives, if we're not t talking about it like it's important, like we need to obey it, what does it mean? It's like I brought up, I just said, you know, they were talking about baptism, and I said, you know, but I... When I read, I believed, and then I yes. was baptized. Yes. I said I then wanted to be baptized. Yes. And of course, they immediately bring in what's in the church of England. Yes. Oh, you can't be baptized twice. Yeah. You know, I said, can't be baptized once. <laughs> so, you know, I just said, Wonderful because God is not a legalist, mm. but I should have said, mm. Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because I'm going to end with something that I, th I found really interesting. <laughs> and I was thinking about this idea of the power, the power of God in the gospel and, um, and the preaching of the gospel. And I suspect we've been all over the houses with Ahaz, so I'm sorry if it hasn't kind of followed a pattern. It has on my notes, but maybe I haven't said it quite right. But anyway, um, uh, I think Ahaz is very typical of. Um, well, of the world, obviously, but also of a large proportion of the professing church. I think he's, he is indicative because of his um, bringing the other altars in, sacrificing on, on the right altars, altars and on the bad altars and, and looking everywhere else for help and not to God. But one of the things that I was thinking about was the idea of the doors of the temple, the doors to God being closed if we're not preaching the gospel. And there's a book by Barry Smith. Has anyone heard of him? Yes. And um, it's called Unlocking the Ultimate Secret, the Mystery of the Gospel. And it's very interesting. This is what he writes. In it, he's looking at what gospel is preached in the various church denominations. And this is what he's writing. This is a quote. The issue about what gospel is being preached is so important that I felt to contact the leadership of each of these churches to find out if they knew their own church's official teaching on salvation. Here is my question. This is still him. You have five minutes in a condemned man's cell to prepare him spiritually for eternity, which immediately follows his execution. What would you say to him? So that was his question to the leadership of various churches. And he says, this is the following, he says, is just a general statement. So obviously it's collected from various things. I'm going to read out the answers. Anglican, infant baptism with believing parents, later confirmation in the church. Honestly, you can... But this is the way of salvation. This is what he's asking. You know, what's the way of salvation? The way of salvation is, were you baptised as an infant? Did you have believing parents? And were you confirmed? Then you're saved. No. Presbyterian. Infant baptism with believing parents. Methodist. 
Infant baptism with believing parents. Congregational, infant baptism with believing parents. Roman Catholic, infant baptism with believing parents, also adhering and practicing the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. The priest and church member alike must believe every church doctrine as it stands. Anyone who does not agree should leave the church. <laughs> Orthodox, infant baptism with believing parents. So you've got all the mainstream denominations, infant baptism with believing parents. Oh, I've got to ask our bishop what his answer is. This was asking, this was asking, remember, what the, the leadership, what the church itself puts down. So not necessarily every individual minister, because every individual minister might, yeah, the Anglicans would say this, the, yes. So, open brethren church, the gospel of the grace of God. Baptist, the gospel of the grace of God. Assembly of God, the gospel of the grace of God. Independent Pentecostal, generally speaking, the gospel of the grace of God. Seventh-day Adventists, receive Christ and keep the law. Church of Christ, some preach, repent and be baptised, some preach the gospel of the grace of God. I mean, the thing is, what... <laughs> the enemy is still closing the doors. And that must have been a long time ago. Yes, 1990s, I think. 19... No, no, if he wasn't... I wouldn't quote him if he wasn't dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can't change their mind. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the enemy is still closing the door. If you go into a church, and I know this because I, from my own experience, my first child was christened in the Church of England because that's what I thought we did. And so we christened her, and then we went to Bahrain to live, and then she died two months later, you know, three months later. And we came back to the same church and to, to meet the vicar and to talk about her burial and the funeral service. And he said to me, looking at me straight in the eye, he said, well, it's so good that she was christened here, christened, because you wouldn't have been able to bury her in the churchyard. Oh, my if goodness. <coughs> now, I mean, the insensitivity of that is on one level. But now, thinking about the fact of, you know, what is that religion that would say that actually what they're saying to me is that my baby is okay because she was christened at, you know, whatever she was when she was christened, eight weeks old. And I've always felt mm. that the infant baptism is carefully attention to the mm. churches, but it's a deception of infant baptism. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's what I'm saying. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. If you teach infant baptism and believing parents or not believing parents, it is a false gospel. And if people believe that, they believe that they're saved and they're not because they haven't put their personal trust in the Lord. Yeah, and so that's the thing, closing the door to God. That's what we're doing. We're closing the door to God. So sometimes, you know, I know I go on about the church and... Well, I don't actually say much anymore, so but I used to. Exactly, that's exactly it. Actually, that's what I've, I've said for years now. The church, as we know it, is our mission field. It's where we do ministry. It's where we evangelize. Because if we don't go into those places, who on earth is ever going to tell them the truth? The gospel is the grace of God received by faith alone. 
just say something? <clears throat> we need a lot of prayer because mm. we can bring the truth in. Mm. And you've got no idea how it hits them. Yeah. When somebody even turned away, you know, physically you could just see mm. such an offence. Yes. So basically we actually need to pray a lot yes. that they will have the yes. ears to hear. Ears to hear. To what does Jesus say at the end of all his messages to the churches? This is what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. There, there has to be a, an agreement with what we hear and a reception of the truth. Yes. And So the churches that preach infant baptism or keeping the law are shutting the door. They're shutting the door. And really in a time when people are trying and looking for truth and looking for God. Um, Second Chronicles 28 finishes with that word about Ahaz that he wasn't buried in the he was buried in the city and not in the tombs of the kings. Um, but I don't want to end there actually because well I am ending there but I don't want to finish with that sentence because um, if I said right at the beginning that Ahaz is the darkness before the dawn and Hezekiah is the dawn and when you get into Second Chronicles 29 and you start to read about Hezekiah in just the same way as the first few verses in 28 talk about Ahaz. The first few verses in 29 tell us all we need to know about Hezekiah. And that is from the moment he came to the throne, he set about putting things right and opening the door of the temple. So um, God is a redeeming, passionate, uh, compassionate God. And through Hezekiah, he will bring Israel, bring Judah back to himself. And so um, just to finish, no matter your background, no matter your past, no matter what you have been and where you have been, God will still shine his light through you if you let him. If you let him. And it will be the light of revival, I think, in our time. Maybe not massive revival, but in these last days, a light will shine through you and through me. How amazing that is. So, Father, thank you that you will shine this light through us, just as you did through Hezekiah and set into motion in his life and then on as a legacy through from his life, Lord God. Such amazing things in, in the people of God in Israel. And so, Lord, we trust that you will do that in us and through us and that as we um, come to you and bow our knee and, and learn from you and, and learn to um, obey you and to... Um, to go along with your will for our lives. As we do that, you will use us in mighty and magnificent ways to bring about a revival in our time and in our place. And that's just so amazing, Lord, and I thank you for it. And I ask you now, Lord, to be with us all as we go home and um, set your angels round about if we're driving as I'm driving home, Lord God, and um, bring us all back next week um, ready to learn more um, about you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.